0: Let's open our Bibles to um, chapter 10 because we all want you to follow through these few verses that we're looking at today. But by way of introduction, I guess if you ask the um, average Joe Bloggs what the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about, I know that you'll get a whole bunch of different understandings and uh, explanations which would clearly indicate that the gospel is nothing more than confusion to most people. But coming a little closer to home, if you ask the same question to the average evangelical Christian, of which we all are, and um, uh, sad to say, you would again discover how blurred and misunderstood the gospel really is. You know, this is a sad indictment on the Christian church, because we live in a day when we have unlimited access to biblical resources. We have Bible colleges, we have seminaries, we have literature galore, we have conferences, we have online teaching, preaching, like never before. And yet, despite all this, despite all this, we have a, um, I'll have that introductory slide up, James, despite all this, we see an increasing dearth of clarity in the understanding of the gospel. And this results in a a fuzzy, weak, dumbed-down application of it. It's even amazing how some Christians who have sat under the word of God for most of their lives and yet often their understanding of the gospel is so weak that they can only give a blurred declaration of this wonderful life-changing message. It's amazing that. And this is a real challenge to us all, folks. it should be a challenge because we need not only have some idea of what the gospel is we need also to be able to declare it or apply it accurately as well and the reason being is because one's eternal destiny depends on the accuracy of that gospel right you know years ago back in New Zealand when I was only a young fellow Our church ran some evangelistic meetings, where they got this itinerant evangelist to come into town, and he had special meetings in our town every night of the week for about ten days, and um, and we were encouraged to attend some training or training session. I think it was only one, or might have been two, to prepare willing to participants or those who would come forward supposedly for salvation after the message and so the whole thrust of this training was to gain some kind of of, of prayerful commitment toward Jesus Christ from these from these folk and the vital step in this counseling this training session was to encourage these people to pray a prayer, asking God to forgive them and to thank Him for that forgiveness that He gave. And we were told then that these people then, as soon as they've prayed that prayer, they need to be assured and encouraged that they are now children of God. In other words, welcome, you're in. Next one, please. Sort of style. I struggle with that methodology and that dodgy gospel thrust even when I was a young person. You see, I couldn't understand how a, a simple prayer and sometimes a, a repeat after me kind of prayer could be what it takes to save a person from hell and put them on the narrow road leading them to eternal life. And I was speaking from experience or thinking from experience because I was taught to pray right from the cradle. Now, i said all those prayers, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Supper this little child. I'd wrote it thus. I was a good prayer. But it didn't mean a thing, right? And so I struggled with that. And so I asked, is what we are learning here, is it accurately applying the biblical gospel? And I soon learned that Scripture nowhere tells us or states that a person's salvation was determined by simply saying a prayer or a sinner's prayer as it was sometimes called in those days. But we were certainly told and are certainly told that to be saved, we must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Amen? That's right. Now, of course, prayer will be involved in a person who believes. But prayer is not the primary action. I believe prayer, speaking to God, is a result of faith. So a prattled of prayer cannot and must not be a substitute or assumed to be synonymous with genuine faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. And so the point is here, folks, that the method and others like that have sent out confusing messages which have blurred the lines of the pure gospel and all its biblical clarity. And hence we get so many people, especially of my generation, because I think we came through that sinner's prayer kind of thing and campaigns and come forward and appeals. That's the era that I was brought up in. And so we have many people who look back and say, oh yeah, I was a Christian because I remember I went forward and I prayed the sinner's prayer, but showing absolutely no evidence of it at all, maybe for years and years and years. And I guess that's a little bit like in our day where we often hear and can often hear a gospel that purposely leaves out the sin word or being told the need, need to repent of your sin because you don't say that because it's supposedly too belittling and too demeaning for the listener. It's too negative, it is suggested. You see, the accuracy and the clarity of the gospel when that happens, is left in murky waters, very much so. So we might ask, does that mean, okay, does that mean, it's getting difficult, does that mean that we must only ever declare the gospel with as every detail and every theological nuance that is indicated in Scripture? Is that how we've got to declare it? Well, the answer is certainly not, absolutely no way. You see, it's not the amount of detail In applying the gospel, that is a problem. No. The problem so often lies in neglecting to declare what the Bible says the gospel is and then applying that truth to either our own hearts or the hearts of listeners as the word of God summons us to do. That's the problem. And this is is what our text in chapter 10 is all about. What we see here is Jesus Christ is declared, what do we see in verse 3 and 4? The righteousness of God, right? And a right application of that truth is demanded of its hearers. In other words, the gospel of God, as we had in chapter 1, verse 1 of Romans, is based on the righteousness of God, which is applied to sinners through faith alone in Jesus Christ. They are simple. I can probably sit right down here now and um, let you nut out the rest. You see, in Paul's day, the Jewish failure... uh, was in their pursuing God's righteousness as you know by endeavouring to keep the law now they were pretty close they had you know they were very privileged people because they had all the oracles of God before them they were they were the privileged nation like no other nation on earth they were close but they failed they absolutely failed The same in our day where many stumble over the true gospel by complicating it. How do they do that? They complicate it by cutting bits out or substituting formula prayers or some other ecstatic experience and end up like the Jews and they fail in applying the gospel for salvation for their own personal righteousness and also uh, the gospel and personal righteousness for others. So we may ask the question: how do we personally apply the gospel? And so this is where we come to our first PowerPoint or first uh, uh, text up there. We need to ask a few questions from our text to gain some clarity on this. And the first question I've got is, will our religious practices ever make us perfect? Now, as we see, this section is clearly connected to the previous paragraph with that connecting word for that you'll see in your text. By the way, Paul uses that six times in what we've read today. And so that just tells us there is this chain of truth that explain, is explained by one part building upon another. Okay? And so what is Paul doing here? Okay, Just bigger context. Remember in chapter 9, we learnt there of God's sovereign grace and electing sinners to salvation. We saw God's side of the whole, whole deal there. Very clearly. He is the Potter, and he he chooses to do what he wants, and he's the prime mover in salvation. But now the emphasis on man uh, is uh, now the emphasis on on man applying God's grace to his life. This is what we see in chapter ten. This is where the Jews came unstuck big time. They had a real problem. They were not depending on God's grace in Jesus Christ for their for their righteous standing. They were depending. on on their own zealousness, as we looked at last week, on their own piety, and on their own religious practices. Well, they were saying a bit like Frank Sinatra, I'll do it my way. Okay? You know, Paul had just stated that Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. In other words, Jesus Christ was everything that the law and the Old Testament pointed to. This was the... This was the The ultimate, as it were. He was the end of the law. He did not come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. This was the the ultimate that the law pointed to, is the end of the law. And so what was the message? Now you must believe. Now you must put your faith in him. So faith is the key. And so Paul begins his argument by loosely quoting in verse 5, as Jordan has rightly said, from Deuteronomy chapter 30. He doesn't quote word for word, but he loosely quotes and he says, A man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. In other words, those who pursue being made right with God by keeping God's holy law must understand something, that they must keep it absolutely perfectly as your eternal life with God hangs on on that, on every single point. Now God does not say, by the way, that you must keep it perfect or you must be careful to keep it, my statutes, most or some of the time. He doesn't say that you must be careful to observe my commandments as best as you can. No, no, he doesn't say that at all from Deuteronomy 30. No, perfect obedience was called for in order to attain righteousness through the law. Perfection. Now this is where the fat hits the fan as it were because no man, Jew or Gentile, saving Jesus Christ and Him alone has ever, will ever, can ever keep the law of God in all its perfection. We all know that. And the reason being is, we know this too, is because man is a sinner by nature and he or she will only ever fail in responding perfectly to God's law as He requires. Now, The Jews in Paul's day, and even today, and most people today, they do not get over this hump. They just cannot and do not get over this hump. They believe they in themselves have the wherewithal to be good enough or to do good enough to satisfy God's requirement and earn His acceptance. That's religion. That's typical religion in our day. They believe in themselves. But regardless of how much and even how good people are or how well they try, when a person fails to submit to the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ and they, and they go it alone, they are substituting flawed, faulty and failed self-righteousness for the perfect righteousness of God. That's what they're doing. So we can ask the question, so will our practices, religious practices make us perfect? The answer is absolutely no. This brings us to our second question we'll see up in the PowerPoint. Second question is, if righteousness based on the law says no, what does righteousness based on faith say? We see this in verses 6 and 7. Now, how's Paul going to answer this question in our passage? Well, inspired by the Spirit of God, Paul now takes his readers to another level in literary comprehension. Okay? Now, being the literary genus he was, what Paul does, he persona- personifies righteousness based on faith. And, and, he, and he makes righteousness based on faith speak for itself, as if it's a person. And so here, righteousness based on faith takes on its own entity, as it were. This is what, how Paul gauges uh, how, how Paul puts it in here. And, and, and he allows righteousness to, based on faith, tell how it genuinely responds to the gospel truth about Jesus Christ. And so Paul arranges this form of dialogue. but He, he does it by setting up a, a kind of a contest, a contrast, a kind of competition between righteousness gained through keeping God's law, that's religious practices, and righteousness gained through faith alone in Jesus Christ. So all, this, is, this is setting the scene here, right? And he does all this because so far in our text, folks, so far in our text, it seems to the reader that it's impossible for anyone to be made right with God. It's impossible. And so the fear of this impossibility, it's it's really raged in the mind of the reader as he reads up until this point. So what Paul does is first, firstly is is to arrange righteousness based on faith to tell readers how it does not respond. In other words, righteousness is based on faith says, now this is how I don't respond. Okay? And so again, Paul here loosely quotes from Deuteronomy 30, where God, in in this passage, in Deuteronomy, God calls his people to be faithful to his sovereign grace that he has covenanted with them. And that goes right back to Genesis 12, uh, where the covenant was first made. And he tells them in Deuteronomy 30 that the covenant blessing will be theirs if they faithfully obey. And he says, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Deuteronomy 30 verse 9 and 10. Now as we think about that, what does the heart and soul speak to you of? I'll tell you what it is. The heart and soul is the engine room of faith that God energizes. Okay, That's where God speaks to. That's where God quickens. That's what God energizes to exercise faith. You see, God's blessing, His acceptance of people, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, has never ever been based on human effort, but on heart and soul faith, which produces obedience. It's always been like that. Nothing's changed. This is the way of blessing. This is the way of salvation. This is the way of righteousness. And then in verse 11 and 12 of of that chapter back in in Deuteronomy, uh, He tells them something simple yet profound. He says this, This is not too difficult, nor is it out of your reach. You see, God through Moses then told them, You do not, even if you could, have to go to heaven to find the wherewithal to be blessed and accepted by me. You do not, even if you could, Has to go beyond the seas to obtain what it takes to know my salvation blessing. In other words, this is not difficult, it's not out of your reach. And this is exactly the same argument that the Apostle Paul uses and picks up on here in our text in Romans chapter 10. He is saying here, even if impossible mystical journeys into heaven to bring Christ to earth, or a journey to the very center of the earth to raise Christ from the dead, even if those impossible things were possible, they could never bring you righteousness or salvation or ever make you right with God. You got the point? Just the same as No sought-after mystical journey. And we get many people in our day, in the evangelical church, going all out into mystical journeys, right? Whether it's speaking in tongues or whether it's spirit slaying in the spirit or whether it's prophecies or dreams or visions or some other uh, emotional, spiritual hype, it won't cut it. It won't gain or add anything to your righteousness or acceptance with God. Genuine righteousness based on faith says those things, no matter what, will never add or seal your righteous standing with God. But you know what, folks? You know what? Man and his religiosity flocks to those things by the millions. By the millions. They flock to these wasted journeys they still want to have, man still wants to have his own, put, own uh, finger on the pulse as it were. He still wants to have his own input into being accepted with God. He still wants that, feels he still has to add his little bit. But, faith, but righteousness is based on faith says stop trying, stop searching for righteousness. Get rid of faulty substitutes like mystical experiences or prayers to Mary or some saint or following some legalistic rules because salvation, righteousness with God is only found in Jesus Christ by what? By faith alone. The work is done. Nothing to add. A man called Jeffrey Wilson, got a good name, at least the first one, he wrote in his Romans commentary this, And I quote, the sheer perversity of unbelief is shown by the many who prefer to undertake an impossible odyssey rather than put their trust in an accessible Christ, end quote. It's so true. So question three, as we'll see up on the PowerPoint. So what else does righteousness based on faith say? And we see this in verses 8 to 10. Well, as we know, Paul continues his personification method in allowing righteousness based on faith to speak. What does it say? You'll see the next slide. It says this. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we're speaking. Okay? That's what it says. First of all, it says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, You do not have to go to the ends of the earth, as we've talked about, and beyond to find it, because God's way of salvation has already been clearly and abundantly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. God's chosen people, you know, Israel had been engulfed in this stuff. They had been engulfed in this Word that is near them. And I believe this word, by the way, is not necessarily the gospel. I believe this word here is near you, is the vehicle of faith. Okay? It's near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we're preaching. And so you don't have to go to the ends of the earth. It's always been there. And, and Israel had been engulfed. They were surrounded by this word of faith which Paul was preaching. Now this faith demand was nothing new, by the way, because, as I said before, even under the Old Covenant, people were not counted as righteousness righteous by merely performing their religious rituals, and they had a whole heap of religious rituals, right? They had ceremonies, they had Passovers, they had feasts, they had this, they had that, they had new moons and Sabbaths, and you name it. Just read through the Old Testament. there's scores of things to do. But what was all that for? It was pointing to Christ. It was showing that in no way could they keep this perfectly and so that they had a real problem they had to trust in the word of god there was one coming to be their redeemer you see the children of israel like us today need to exercise faith in the revelation that god had given them that is why abraham abraham is a classic example and he's used in the new testament as a classic example as a man of faith you see abraham was accepted by god why Because he believed, and because of his belief, because of his faith, God counted him as righteous. And the Jews knew this. They knew this. This Abraham was their hero. They knew why he was declared righteous and accepted by God. Why? Because he believed. And so they were engulfed in this word of faith that we have here. Now, the same message is exactly for us today. It's no different. The way to be made right with God is near you. Can I say it's right under your noses, as it were, our noses. It is faith in the preached gospel of God. It is faith in the good news of Jesus Christ, who became our sin bearer on the cross. Faith in the the Saviour who died, was buried, and He rose again, the one who ascended into heaven, and the one who will come again and receive all those who have been declared righteous in Christ unto Himself. The way to righteousness is near, folks. It's very near. It is by faith and faith alone. Not faith in your faith, by the way. A lot of people get hooked up on this. They say, oh, you've got your faith. I've got mine. And they like to think that that's cool and that's okay. That's spiritual enough. I don't care about your faith. But I certainly want to know that your faith is in the right person. We can have faith in anything. The Muslims have faith. Jehovah's witnesses have faith. The Hindus have faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith that's energized by the Spirit of God, that's given to us by God. No other way will satisfy God's demand on this. The Gospel is not about doing your best or anything about human improvement or, or behavioral management. Nothing like that at all. It's about heart and soul faith in Jesus Christ. This is why we must get the gospel right, folks. Absolutely. Gospel is just not an improved morality or going to church. No, no, no. This is why it's imperative we apply it right to our own lives and the lives of the others we witness to. Because so many in our world and in our churches, they have a limited understanding, a distorted understanding about God's way of salvation. That's why I quoted Frank Sinatra before with a song. I'll do it my way. But here it, is in its, here it is in its clarity. Okay, It's not changed from Paul's day to ours. And we need to get this down real good. Here it is. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness and With the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, we need to stop here and all up and look at our text and think about this, because as we do, we will note here the order of Paul's words. And this is important. First, he speaks of confession with the mouth, right? You see that? And then of faith, which is in the heart. But when we come to verse 10, we see that the order is reversed which is the chronological order, by the way, of salvation. Okay, you want to know how salvation starts? This is where it starts, from man's perspective. First, verse 10, with the heart man believes. And as a result, that person is granted righteousness from God. God." Then second, with the mouth he confesses, resulting in what? Salvation. In other words, what Paul is highlighting here is that applying the gospel through faith alone results in what? It results in righteousness and salvation. Now those two words are synonymous, but Paul used them for a very important reason to describe salvation. These two words. Because these two words point to the two aspects of salvation that is often neglected in a lot of a modern evangelism. And we need to get it down right. We need to understand it. When we see the word salvation and when that is used, what does it point to? It points to and tells us something of the rescue mission that God went into and that we have experienced. That is the deliverance of a sinner from God's righteous wrath against sin. Let's face it, folks. We're on the road to hell, right? We're on that broad road. There was no hope for us. And God plucked us, as it were, as brands from the burning. He plucked us. He rescued us. He delivered us. He saved us. That old-fashioned gospel word. But you don't hear too much these days in some circles. But when he uses the word righteousness, it tells the sinning believer that it has now become something else. He has now become and declared to be righteous in Jesus Christ. So salvation is about deliverance and righteousness is about what the believer has or the sinning convert has now become. I like how... John MacArthur says it, and he says it right in his commentary. He says this, Righteousness has to do with what we become, and salvation has to do with what we escape. The first has to do with eternal life we receive but do not deserve. The second with eternal punishment we deserve but do not receive. The first relates to entering into blessedness. The second relates to escaping cursedness, end quote. That's an important facet to understand. So many of us are just limited to salvation. Okay, I've been saved from hell on my way to heaven. That's it, period. And I think because so many Christians don't understand who they are in Christ, they've been declared righteous. They have been, they're looked upon as one with Jesus Christ. And so when God looks upon His Son at His right hand, He just doesn't see Jesus Christ. He sees every single person who has come to him in faith? Perfect! That's an awesome thought, right? Worship material. But don't get this wrong here as you read through this text and think that first you must believe, okay? That's one part of my coming to faith and knowing Jesus Christ and being a Christian. And second, I have to do something else to to kind of seal the deal of salvation, as it were. I must verbally witness to others and confess Jesus as Lord. You know, I I sort of hung on to that and it, it, it just worried me to death for a long time as a young person. Mind you, it's good to confess Jesus Christ as Lord with your mouth and we need to do that. But you know what? That is a result of being declared righteous. It's a bit like prayer as a result. Prayer to God and salvation is a result of belief from the heart. Confession that Jesus Christ is the Lord is a result of being declared righteous. It's a, it's a follow-on, it's a fruit. But that's not, this is not what uh, verse 9 and 10 is saying or what it means. It doesn't mean that there's two parts where we've got to have some input by confessing. What this is saying is that there are two essential elements faith must believe must grasp hold of and submit to in order to bring about salvation. And I've got a PowerPoint, the next one up there, and we're going to have a look at this first truth, okay, of this two aspects. The first truth that must be grasped and submitted to is Jesus is Lord. See that? Now, many believe in Jesus, you know that. They believe that he's the Son of God, they believe that he died on the cross, they believe that... um, They'll believe a whole lot of things about Jesus. They'll believe in his virgin birth. They'll even believe that he rose again. They'll believe that he's coming again. Um, But you know, folks, that is never enough. Never enough. It doesn't cut it. James tells us that even demons believe truth about God. And you know what they do? They shudder at the truth they know about him. Mental assent is not saving faith. Genuine faith in Jesus Christ is faith that what? It submits to His Lordship over everything, including every area of our lives. Jesus cannot be your Saviour without being your Sovereign Lord. The confession Jesus is Lord is, is the natural overflow of the heart who truly believes that God raised Him from the dead. Faith in Christ results in confession of Christ's faith. Genuine heart and soul faith in Christ will naturally overflow with a confession of Him. In other words, you will raise the flag, His flag, over your life in a number and a variety of ways. You will not be able to hide the results of genuine faith in your life you will willingly and gladly submit to His Lordship. You will obey Him. You will get baptized. You will go where He leads. You will kill sin in your life. You will speak well of Him. We will manifest an ongoing submission to His Lordship. Will we be perfect in that? No. But there will be this trend. There will be this ongoing trend Will there be dips and dives? Yes, but there will be this ongoing trend where we can say, and I'm quoting from Bodie Botham, where we can say as we look back over life, today is better than yesterday and tomorrow is going to be better than today. Is that the trend of your life, spiritually? If it's not, you better get down and do some business with the Lord to see where you are spiritually. We'll gladly submit to His Lordship. Second, second point here, the second fundamental truth we'll see on the point there, PowerPoint that must be laid hold of by faith is that Jesus arose from the dead. And you think, well, why is this stuck in here? Yeah, because there's a number of other important truths about Jesus, right? What about his incarnation? What about his miracles? What about his, all those things that he said and done on earth? And what about his, his eternality? But above all those, the supreme truth, you know what? The supreme truth that validates Jesus' ministry as man's saviour is this and this alone, is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Because he arose, what happened? He demonstrated his victory over death and sin and Satan. And that's my kind of Lord. I don't want nothing less. Anything less wouldn't cut it. Wouldn't save me. Wouldn't do the job. Paul said this in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power by what? By the resurrection from the dead according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. Folks, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there can be no salvation. That's why we make much of this truth. That's why we rejoice and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because Jesus is alive forevermore, Amen. We have a man now in the glory. He's the firstfruits of those who slept. Because he's in the glory as a man, we will be there with them one day. What a great truth that is. So remember that confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Absolutely essential. If you say you're a Christian, but but if you're a person who says, "Yeah, I'm a believer, but I'm not too phased on this resurrection from the dead business," you just better start preaching the gospel to that person because he's still out and out. In closing, I want to remind you that all the doctrines of Scripture are important. Yet so often, isn't it true that the most vital truths for salvation is exactly where so many people go wrong righteousness based on faith is one such doctrine. And this is where so many people go wrong. And you know what? So many good people, so many religious people. And even in the evangelical church. Dear people, what are we basing our acceptance of God on? Even as Christians, we can get screwed up on this. We can begin adding to faith. Adding to Christ's all-sufficient work and person. We can add to that our own efforts, our own religious and even very good practices. With this distorted idea that by doing so, we're going to be drawn nearer to God. You know what? I don't care... I'm 61 years old, I've been a Christian for probably 50 years, not too sure exactly. But I am no closer positionally to God today than I was when I first was accepted by God when I believed and trusted Him. Yes, experientially we can get cold in heart. But to be drawn near to God, He has drawn near to us and drawn us to Him when we put our faith in him. Let us not be legalistic and add to the faith because there's nothing to add. Otherwise, we're just no different than these Jews of of Paul's day. We're holding to a righteousness based on law. May I leave this one verse with you? It's um, not in Romans, but it's a a favourite one of mine that's up on the PowerPoint. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. How true that is. Thank you, Jordan.